0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. a podcast is dedicated to the parents of children struggling with the effects of trauma and attachment disorders, and the caseworkers, coordinators, and other professionals who support them. Your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Vivian Norris, who will explore her work in DDP. Vivian is qualified as a certified therapy therapist and a dyadic developmental psychotherapy or DDP practitioner. She has worked as an NHS psychologist and in private practice for many years and has developed considerable experience with foster and adoptive families. She has written for a number of publications and is experienced in providing supervision and training. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter.
1: So good morning, I have Dr. Vivian Norris here with me, um, who lives in Wales, and um, Vivian, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before we start talking about dyadic developmental psychotherapy?
2: Okay, thank you Karen, Um, uh, I um, did a whole range of things before I trained as a clinical psychologist, so my profession at the moment is clinical psychologist. Um, but prior to that, um, I trained as a music therapist and uh, worked for many years in adolescent residential therapeutic communities. So I think they're all relevant to how I've ended up um, facilitating um, DDP. Um, I also use a lot of TheraPlay. So I've 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 been now working for 25 years with traumatized children but in different contexts in the last 20 years in a in a health setting Um, but um, i've specialized now to be working um, solely with adopted and fostered children in the uk and providing specialist therapies and training so that's primarily ddp but also integrating a lot with theraplay and working alongside occupational therapy Um, so we do a lot of sensory regulation work as well
1: yeah, so can you tell me a little bit about what led to that specialization for you?
2: Um, well, I think I always really enjoyed um, the residential side of work in terms of having genuine connected relationships with mm-hmm. young people. And I think uh, when I Uh, I I was a musician, and when I was deciding whether to do psychology or music, I I went for the psychology degree, but was always a bit frustrated that I hadn't pursued the music. So when I got the chance, I I went and trained as a music therapist. And I think the combination of the the intensity of a residential setting and the music came together later on in my career um, with the Dan Hughes approach because i did I did my psychology clinical psychology training and and worked for a number of years in the NHS, but I felt a little bit frustrated with some of the, um, some of the training ideas about keeping you know a sense of distance or being somewhat bland as a clinician um, i don 't know not, not being able to be perhaps as playful or as spontaneous or as, as funny or you know some of the things about being a professional psychologist. I found a little bit limiting. So when I did Dan Hughes' training, I can't even remember, 2008 or something like that it was now, there was something about the framework that brought together those different strands. So it was almost like um, a relief just to have found a model which was saying you need to genuinely connect. You need to be transparent about who you are and you need to... Um, find a way of intersubjectively connecting with people, um, and I think that's there was something in the fra- that framework that fitted both with music and with my most favourite part of the work, which was being around young people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And bringing together that right brain and left brain is
0: yeah,
1: yeah. you know, saying and um, I do think that also. Um, you know, although we're going to, we're talking about DDP, that the TheraPlay training you brought to Wales, of, of which I was one of the trainers, was the first TheraPlay training in Wales. Okay. And I could imagine maybe you did something similar with DDP. It seems that you've been kind of a pioneer in your country and bringing some of these ideas here. So, um, what, tell, me, tell me a little bit about that role
2: that you have had. Um, well, it's, it's happened quite accidentally, really. I think because we're very rural, what seems to happen is that if somebody has an idea, it's, it's like you create something you want to create and then it ripples out. So now we have a kind of cluster of really quite uh, skilled and, and um, qualified people in the one place. And it's created a sort of um, knock-on impact so that people now will you know, come for supervision and to observe what we're doing, but I think because of the rurality, um, what's, what's happened is we've had to adapt the model because families sometimes are driving two hours just in a standard way to come and access a service because we're so spread out geographically. So, we've moved towards an intensive model where the whole family comes. So, uh, rather than having weekly or fortnightly sessions, it's just not practical when 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 families live so, lonely. so they'll they'll come for a whole day, and we'll do a combination of different things. And I think that's really um, that's really allowed a model to sort of generate and develop. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there there are there are a couple of other DDP qualified people in Wales, but it's very thin on the ground, um, and. I mean, it's developing, but not not as quickly as in some other areas of the UK. And
1: and you think part of that reason is how rural you guys are and spread out and things like that. Yeah,
2: I think I think in the, uh, as well in um uh in the UK at the moment we've got, we've had a big push on adoption and uh, there's there's a there's some funding um, being ring fenced for adoption support, but it only applies to England. It doesn't apply to Wales and Scotland or Ireland. And um, What that means is that people that have uh, quickly are tending to be in clusters in England. I mean, we have quite an active Scottish group, but in terms of um, delivering specialist therapy, um, that there's, there's been quite a different approach in the different parts of the UK.
1: Would you be able to speak to how do you feel culture might impact the acceptance of DDP or oh, DDP. I know you also mentioned therapy, but
2: you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, I mean, I can only really speak from my own experience. I think there's that people have mixed feelings about it. It's it's becoming increasingly accepted in the UK. We have got very strong, UK leadership group. So the group within the UK, with Kim Golding and Julie Hudson and colleagues, who are taking DDP forward, have really done an excellent job in terms of networking and creating a framework. So within the UK, DDP is is really gaining in acceptance. It's not um, not quite so much within the NHS clinics necessarily. But in terms of the looked after and adopted population, it's becoming much more accepted as a way of working. And I'm not sure if there's a cultural impact, but um, the relief that people feel of having a model where you have the parent in the room all the way through and you see the parent as the key person because of the the, obviously being the the main attachment figure for the child, finding a model where that is integrated into the process um, is very appealing. Um, Because the feedback over the years we've had as clinicians from foster carers and adoptive parents, you know, when you're providing child psychotherapy or, um, you know, EMDR or any of the approaches, play therapy, where the child is taken into a different room to the parents, the, the feedback we've had over years from the adoptive and foster parents is that they feel excluded. They don't know what's happening in the room. And at times they feel more disconnected rather than more connected through the therapy. So I think that's the biggest I don't know how it really relates to the U.K. culture, but in terms of the culture of people working, uh, we looked after and adopted children. Having the parent as the key agent of change, it just makes complete sense. Um, and obviously Dan came to, over, over from USA to the U.K. and has presented the model, and it's just gathered momentum.
1: It's an interesting thing to think about because I think that there's in the United States it makes sense to therapists, and there's a group of parents that it makes sense to. Uh, there's another group of parents who are more accustomed to just dropping their child off for therapy, maybe being in the waiting room or running to do some errands in town, that are having a um, maybe a little bit harder time understanding why they have to be there too. Do you yeah.
2: have it that? Um, well, we probably have less of that because we have less therapy provision. Mm. So, <laughs> there's very that, that most families weren't getting any provision. Um, so, that there really isn't a culture so much of people being able to access therapy. I don't think so. We'll have some families who will have previously accessed child psychotherapy or play therapy, and will be used to dropping off their children. But it's really the minority. So, that the majority of children are looked after and adopted their families really were accessing consultation um, and guidance maybe some parenting support but very few would have been accessing therapy through our mental health services because in order to access child mental health services in the UK you really have to have more of a psychiatric uh, diagnosis it's, it's, having attachment difficulties and very difficult behaviours or hard to understand behaviours does not necessarily get you a service in terms of therapy. So uh-huh. um, it's actually to, to get into our, our what's yeah. known as the CAM service, you're very often having to present with a diagnosis. Mm. Um, so yeah. often the children with these very severe and complex difficulties, which is our looked after group, were were not able to access the men- child mental health services. I mean, sometimes they they managed to get through the threshold, but very often they weren't getting a service. And so local authorities, who are the, the agency who organised the fostering and adoption service, were buying in therapy. That's, that's where most of the funding came from, and they were tending to buy in child psychotherapy, but mainly play therapy. And so there's been a very big shift in our culture about what they will now favor and that group will 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 now be looking mainly towards ddp and therapy that's my sense i mean it's not every uh, in every case because sometimes um an individual focused therapy is really impactful and i'm only talking about looked after and adopted children um you know when we're thinking about this because that's the group in the uk where ddp has been most focused
1: yes and um so what I understand you to be saying is, these parents had didn't have a whole history of this is how therapy goes. They were sort yeah. of like, how does therapy go? And I could use some help and support and here I
2: am. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and also the ones who had, uh, most people who had experienced an individual therapy who I've come across and colleagues have come across have not had sufficient feedback from the worker this isn't every case obviously but very often I think uh, they would be feeling quite dissatisfied because they didn't know they didn't really understand what was going on in the room even with the best efforts of the of the individual worker and I think placing um, them as the central agent of change you know through trying to influence their relationship with the child has led to much stronger relationships with our foster carers and adoptive parents because it makes so much sense to them. So, that, I mean, I think there's some reluctance, um, but the reluctance isn't so much about the model, I don't think. I think some people find it difficult, um, the way in which the model um, moves towards the past, uh, you know, when, when, when people are feeling uncomfortable about that. So that, that will have come up more often, I think, than people objecting to the model itself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes,
1: yes, I understand. Um, So if you were to give an overview to listeners on what dyadic developmental psychotherapy is, in just a few sentences, what would you say? (laughs) A very hard
2: hard question. (laughs) Um, Well, I suppose the core of it is about intersubjective connection And to find ways using, I mean, the attitude that Dan Hughes teaches is is like a way of being. It's an attitude rather than a group of skills, which is to do with playfulness, acceptance, curiosity and empathy. And I think probably the heart of that is the empathy and about finding a way to genuinely connect with the young person and family you're with and find a way of communicating with them. That you are alongside, you know, and get get in some way what they're experiencing, and of course that's much harder to do than it sounds. When you have children who uh, avoid connecting, you know, when their very fibres are telling them that it's unsafe to connect, um, and I suppose safety is the key the key message. That if is there a way to help this young person? feel safe enough to take the risk of having any kind of connection so Mm -hmm. whether it's a playful connection or or a connection which is trying to pick um or not understand and make sense of their um of their experiences so i mean a lot of the, the the elements of ddp so you have the kind of attitude of pace and then uh, there's, a very, there's a kind of structure to the way a session might go. So you'll spend some time giving a message to the child that you're interested in the whole of them. Uh, so you won't go in saying, what's the problem and, and, and how are things going? You're much more likely to spend some time connecting and chatting uh, with a young person first. There might be quite a lot of lightness, or obviously if they're upset, you would you would go immediately with some curiosity. But you're not going in with a fixed agenda, and you're trying to give the message that, I want to get to know you. And within that uh, kind of framework, uh, you use a melodic tone, you use a kind of uh, way of talking that flows so that the therapist is leading in that sense, but there's a lot of leading and following and leading and following, and you keep the pace going, and then you would tend to weave in the trauma themes. So they come in in the same kind of tone of voice that the interested connection comes in. So the child is not thinking, here comes the difficult topic. Mm So you might just be having a conversation about a T-shirt or the football game or something, and then you would weave in you know that oh my, I heard you had a difficult day and there was a fight and somebody got hurt, you know. So, you will use the same kind of tone, and in, in that way, um, a lot of the anxiety about these difficult topics um, becomes more manageable. And, and you, you, the, 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 but one of the theoretical concepts that's really useful is about the affect and the reflect, so you have this affective-reflective dialogue and you move between these two things. So you'll try and connect with um, matching where the child might be, showing some curiosity, um, trying to um, deepen their experience of the affect uh, by using empathy, and then you might um, shift into a more reflective kind of a conversation, building up a narrative or a story about... Uh, what they might be experiencing, and you move between those two states, um, and it gives you lots of flexibility because you can take breaks when you need to. You can talk about the child instead of directly with them, and that that lightens the affect impact. Or you can talk for them, which deepens the affect. So there's lots of different ways. Um, there's lots of different ways of shifting the intensity to make it manageable. Yeah, I think it's one of those approaches It's quite hard to sum up because and it's when you're training in it. I mean, you know, when I was doing the practicum, you know, always thinking, is this DDP? Am I doing it? <laughs> you know, because it's it's I think it's 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 not like a, a manualized, um, you know, set of things you do. It's more like a, a, a group of approaches that come together. Yes.
1: And I like how when you talked about um, pace, playful, accepting, curious and empathic, that you're talking about a way of being, you know, not a set of things to do. And that very much um, makes sense to me. Um, and I, I think is sometimes a different way of thinking about the therapy. So, so Vivian, the last thing i like to ask you about um, related to DDP is the work with parents. Um, are you um, sometimes having separate sessions with the parents? You know, often when I was first training DDP, the the model of one session was kind of meeting with the parents for a little bit, hearing what was happening in the home, getting some information from them to allow you to possibly bring some of that into the session. Um, however, as years went by, I was hearing sometimes Uh, therapists were meeting with parents for an extended period of time just with them before even bringing them into the the therapy session so so how are you going about that
2: yeah well I think um, a huge amount of the work is with parents and um, most people Um, as I understand it now, would be doing something around six sessions just with parents. So it would be unusual to have one session then move into work with the child. Um, I mean, the thinking behind it is that the parents, one, they understand um, the model and understand what sorts of responses are going to be helpful in the room. Um, But mainly you want to deepen your relationship with them and understand enough about what they're bringing to the relationship um, so that you can feel confident that when you start to help the child to become more vulnerable, you're not going to re-traumatise them. Um, you know, you can predict what the parent is likely to be saying. And, I mean, things like, uh, you know, your natural inclination to reassure a child or to move into problem-solving. Um, we would work quite hard with parents to think through how that might close down a child you know how it might be more helpful to pause and to just go with the affect and just try and deepen their experience before we reassure them Um, and a part of a part of the parent work of course is is thinking about their own attachment history and how you do that is going to be very variable because um, some parents that takes a lot longer and you might for instance i mean the way i would work is Every now and then, so every two or three sessions, I'm having a parent session, a parent-only session. Um, and that would be a matter of a standard process whereby, um, I mean, in an ideal situation, I would meet with a parent, you know, for half an hour, 40 minutes immediately before I met with the child. And then I would feed back to the parent after I met with the child. But that requires you to have a colleague to be with the child. So mm-hmm. you might be doing that on the telephone. Um, but within a DDP session, you, you really don't want a parent to come into a room and, and, and list all the things that the child's done wrong because that's going to shame the child um, and it's going to make connection with them much more difficult. So we try and separate some of those issues so that we're dealing with that with the parent separately so that when you're in the session with the young person, you can really give them your full your full attention and feel confident that the parent's going to say something that you think is going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of trust from the parent's point of view.
1: Yes, yes. And so you're saying that, um, if I'm getting you correctly, uh, standard six sessions with the parent before starting the process with the child. And then ideally, you would want to have discussions with them about the sessions. Yeah, before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and some, sometimes that needs to happen by phone or sometimes it also happens maybe every 30, third or fourth session. You say, we're just going to meet with you um, yeah. to allow for that to
2: happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my experience is that it's, if you can build in as much of this adult conversation as you can around it, it makes a huge difference. And very often when things go wrong, it's, it's you realize you haven't got enough adult preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the parts of the model I really like is that it's very um it's built into the model, the idea of repair. And because you you you're spontaneous and, and monitoring safety all the time, that's an integral part of the model. When things go wrong in the room, so you've said something and you've noticed that a child has withdrawn a little bit or you've offended somebody, um there's you would immediately repair so it becomes a really core part of the way you talk so you might take a little risk realize you've overstepped a mark repair and and because that's built in very much as a part of the way uh you you talk in an everyday way it does mean you can talk to parents quite openly you know if i say this what do you think you would say and you might do some role playing um and um you know, if you did something that you felt went wrong, you would immediately uh, talk about it.
1: Yes, yes. Well, Vivian, thank you so much for your time and for this discussion. And I know it's not always easy <laughs> with time zones to find times for us to connect when we're in different countries. But I just, and I very much appreciate your contribution to the book. Attack. Thank you very much, Karen. Action. So thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe to our iTunes channel for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.